0: Amen. Thank you, worship team. I was telling the first service that I love that version of the song. I never heard it before, but next time we sing it, I want, to, I want to see a little bit more dancing from us all. That was good, right? I mean, that was a good song. Thank you, worship team. Before I get started, I just want to call your attention to an important update with The Current on the, on the rear regarding the Riverstone Youth Group. There is a significant update due to the weather. They were originally gonna meet for um, celebrating the graduates for for this year. There was a party over at uh, Core Creek Park. That's now gonna be here at the church at 4.30. So whoever planned to attend that, um, come here at 4.30 instead of over at the park. I'm sure you'll you'll remember when you walk out the doors. This morning we'll be taking just a, a one week break from our series through numbers. To essentially reinforce our mission at the church, advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. And, and this morning particularly, we'll be looking at um, what it means and what it looks like to live out our lives as witnesses to the gospel. If you have been, if you have tasted the goodness of God, if you have been transformed by the power and the hope of the gospel, well then you are a witness. You are a witness to the truth and reality of Jesus Christ and, and the power of, of the gospel at work in your life. And so this morning we'll take a look at what it, what it, what it looks like and, and some characteristics of living out our lives as witnesses. Um, I'll open up in a word of prayer and then the ushers can come forward and, and distribute Bibles for those who may not have one with them. <clears throat> Father, thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that you called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light into your family, that, that you are with us and for us now and forevermore, there's no greater assurance in that, Father. We thank you that you've called us into your family and you've sent us out on mission as your hands and feet, sharing the, the love and the hope of the gospel with the world around us. Father, this morning we pray that you impress your word upon our hearts, fill us with the love of Christ, fill us with the fullness of God, that we move out this morning uh, more zealous in pursuit of you and and sharing the grace of God with others, that as we extend grace to more and more people, it would abound in thanksgiving to God. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be looking at a chapter in Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 11, but before we start, I just want to uh, share with you a little bit about that, a little bit about a guy that I've been reading recently, and and hopefully be of some encouragement to you all. Leslie Newbegin was a renowned British missionary uh, to India for several decades in the mid 20th century, and when returning to England in the 70s, he noticed a massive decline in the church and Christianity's influence alongside. The culture. When he first left, there was an expectation that people would just come to church. And they did. The culture was highly Christianized. The the value system of society and cultural institutions lined up with the values of the Bible, of Christianity. And so things worked well together. Missions, therefore, was entering into a land that was devoid of Christian presence and influence, and and it consisted of living missionally in all aspect of one's life in order to bring the gospel and hope to this land. Missions was something that the Western world, Europe, and North America did over there in places like India. But at home, in the West, Christians didn't feel the need to live missionally in their lives because everything was Christian in a sense. They saw it and were part of the value system everywhere. Now, when, when Leslie got home, He noticed this major, this radical shift in culture, and he noticed that the church was still operating in the traditional model that they were before he left, expecting people to come to the church knowing that there was a radical change in the world out there. And so he urged the church, guys, we can't just keep going on doing church as if the world around us has not drastically changed. We need to be the church out in the world. And he spent the rest of his life writing incredible material that that still speaks very loudly today um, on on how we in the West need to have a missionary encounter with Western culture. He, He spent the rest of his life calling the church to reinvigorate biblical priorities of being the church in the world, with the drastic shifts in North American society over the last 30 years, we now find ourselves in the same boat as England back in the 70s. However, what I suggest to you all this morning is that we're also simply reverting back to the societal makeup of first century Rome in ways. While it is clear that the 2018 North American landscape is very different than first century Rome, it's important that we identify and acknowledge the similarities so that we stay encouraged in our mission to advance the Gospel by making disciples right here in Bucks County. If the Gospel advanced As mightily as we see it did in first century Rome, there is no reason why it cannot and should not be advancing just as mightily, just as powerfully, just as effective in 21st century America. And specifically with respect to eastern Pennsylvania, central Jersey, wherever you're traveling from. I want to walk us through a passage in the book of Acts, chapter 11, which illustrates for us three characteristics of the early church that played a significant role in advancing the gospel in a pluralistic society. Very much one that we live in today. By pluralistic, we mean a place of great diversity, a a place of of a wide array of of religions and ideologies and, and idolatries. I hope that by analyzing the early church and seeing how the earliest believers lived out their faith, we can get back to the roots of what it means to be the church, to be salt and light in the world, to be witnesses to the gospel. To set the stage for us, the book of Acts illustrates, uh, it records the movement of the early church and, and, and the spreading of the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Christ dies, buried, was buried, he resurrects and then spends 40 days um, teaching his disciples, appearing in his resurrected form to hundreds of others, witnesses. Then he ascends into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit to, as he promised, to, to fill and empower his believers to move out on mission, sharing the good news of the gospel, what God has done through Jesus Christ, redemption to humanity throughout the world. Starting in Jerusalem, the believers saturate the city with with sharing the good news of what just happened. And they're faced with heavy opposition. One man in particular, Saul, before his conversion to Christ, uh, and and we we know him as the Apostle Paul, um, just endorsed the stoning of the first documented Christian martyr, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Scripture tells us, that after the stoning of Stephen, a great persecution arose among the Christians and forced them out of Jerusalem. That's where we're at in Acts 11, verse 19. So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then, when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord for he was a man and for he was a good man and full of the holy spirit and of faith excuse me and and considerable numbers were brought to the lord and he left for tarsus to look for saul and when he had found him he brought him to antioch and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers and the disciples were first called christians in antioch now at this time some prophets came down from jerusalem to antioch one of them named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. I want to start us off by drawing our attention to Barnabas' first encounter with the believers in Antioch. Verse 23 tells us, When he arrived, he witnessed the grace of God and rejoiced. How do you witness the grace of God? What does it look like? What did he see? That made him rejoice. He saw the living body of Christ. Living out their lives as the living body of Christ. He saw the church. The the radiating as, as the manifold wisdom of God. He saw the church. God's masterpiece on display in all its glory and beauty. John 17 says, I have, this is Jesus praying to God the Father before he leaves the, before he, he leaves the disciples, uh, before his crucifixion. He says, I have sanctified myself for them. I have been glorified in them. When people look at the church, they should see Jesus. This is important to acknowledge because that's our function in the world. Namely, to display the glory and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And this can be hard to see today. 2,000 years later. After years and ages of, of church cultural developments and societal shifts. The, the, the true nature and function of the church can be covered up in a sense. It's like It's like going to, to Israel and, and 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 trying to see the original temple. Yeah, there's a lot to see. There sure is, but it's still kind of hard to picture what it looked like in all its beauty, in its perfection, because it's been kind of changed, eroded in some ways because, from the natural elements. So I want us to look at how the early church in this passage lived out their calling and purpose. How is it that they were so fruitful in their lives? What about them was so attractive, so beautiful, that, that large numbers were added, considerable numbers we just read? The first characteristic of these believers we see is that they were an evangelizing community. They were an evangelizing community. In the first few verses, 19 to 21, the first thing we see is the relocation of these relatively new Jewish believers to new cities to make their dwelling. The early Christians were speaking the word, which as we see consisted of preaching the Lord Jesus, specifically to those who had a foundation in their understanding of God and the Messiah, the Jews. But some of them, some of them began preaching the Lord Jesus to the Greeks also. Now it's important that we, that we, make, that we understand the, the difference here between Jew and Greek. Although there is an ethnic distinction between Jew and Greek, these two categories also represent religious and irreligious people, as we see in Romans 1 and 2. So, the Greeks, as we see here, can also include Gentiles, pagans, uh, immoral, godless people. Now, what were the believers doing? The text says preaching, but don't restrict the illustration to what I'm doing formally before you now. The Greek word for preaching is euangelizo, and and. I Often I don't find it of any much significant value to, to teach on isolated individual Greek or Hebrew words, but I want you to see the direct connection. It's the word by which we get the word evangelize, euangelizo. It, it literally means to gospelize, quite simply to share the good news of what Jesus has done. Sharing the gospel. That's evangelism. And what's important to note is who is evangelizing? Who is it that's sharing the good news of Jesus Christ that's bringing in large numbers of of people to the faith? Those. Some of them. Unnamed nobodies. Unnamed nobodies who have certainly, who certainly have their names written in heaven. Faithful, unnamed nobodies who certainly have received their their commendation as they've entered into the presence of Christ. Paul and Barnabas, it's important that we recognize this in this passage, Paul and Barnabas only organized and further encouraged that which was already being done. This Message: this sermon is not about Paul and Barnabas. It's about the unnamed ones. And we should take great comfort in this to see the fruit of the Lord through the laity. It's important that we acknowledge this because as Michael Green notes in his book, Evangelism in the early church, he says, Christianity's explosive growth was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries, the Christian lay people, the scattered saints in the world, through informal interactions and conversations. That's what gave way to the spontaneous growth and expansion that we see in Acts, not through the trained formal preachers and evangelists. The early church engaged their friends, their families, their co-workers, those in their schools, in the marketplaces. They did it naturally. They did it enthusiastically. In other words, it was a spirit-led movement, not a bureaucracy. The early church did not feel the need to evangelize or live out their lives as witnesses to the gospel through the missions department. The early church owned the mission. Evangelism primarily happened at the grassroots level, out in the world through the scattered saints, not from the top down within the walls of the gathered assemblies. To evangelize or share the good news of Jesus is not, therefore, episodic. It's not something that we take off a day to go do in a place that's foreign to us. Sometimes it can be. We, we, we prepare and send short-term teams to New York and all that. I mean, sometimes it can be, absolutely. But it's more so a lifestyle. The early church, generally speaking, not including its missionaries, they, they, did, not, they did not feel the need to leave their daily paths to share about the good news of Jesus. Jesus. They opened their eyes with a keen sensitivity of those around them and maximized their daily paths, their workplaces, their schools, their marketplaces, their journeys to and from to reach those and influence those around them with the good news of the gospel. Now, throughout the New Testament, it's clear that evangelism or sharing the good news of Jesus has a priority over all other aspects of a believer's life. And I'll explain this. This is because the essence of Christianity is good news. Christianity, at its core, is about a phenomenological event. Something that took place in, something that took place in the world, in the history, in the history of humanity that changed the course of humanity forever, namely the death and resurrection of Jesus. Christianity is about a message of who Jesus is and what he has done for us. The the transformed life, the life poured out in in deeds of service, um, the pursuit of holiness and Christ-like maturity, all that flows out of what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross. Do we understand that? It's about an event. That's the starting point. That's what separates Christianity from all other religions of the world. All other religions of the world provide a pathway to redemption, a a, a path to, to, to redeem us ourselves from our corrupt state. But Christianity, only Christianity, says you are so corrupt, there's nothing you could ever do to earn good standing with God. There's nothing you could ever do to redeem yourself. Therefore, redemption has come to us. Redemption is accomplished. It is finished Salvation has come. Now tell everybody. And you can't tell people what Jesus did 2,000 years ago for us through your lifestyle. You can't draw people to an understanding of who God is and lead them to repentance and faith through your lifestyle. Now, I'm going to get to the balance there of the absolute necessity of a lifestyle of deeds, of good deeds and and service poured out and and, and the absolute necessity there. But it's important that we understand the priority of sharing in word form of what happened, telling people what happened 2,000 years ago, the truth of who God is, who Jesus is, why we need him, and why he has come. Now, Note something special here about evangelism. Notice the flow here, and you'll see something that we need to reckon with. Those who were scattered because of the persecution began preaching the Lord Jesus. The early church turned persecution into proclamation. They were so satisfied in in this gospel message. They were so utterly assured and secure of their hope in Christ that they were able to receive hate and respond in love. Only the gospel can do that. In the midst of such heavy opposition against them, they didn't retreat to the corners, sulking and grumbling and licking their wounds. They turned persecution into proclamation and sought every opportunity to share of the hope of the gospel, to make known the grace of God. How do you think the 21st century American church responds to our social, religious, political opposition? Because it's increasingly there. I don't need to convince you that. How are we responding? That's of greatest concern. Do you think we stand out as an extraordinarily content community? Steadfast, secure in our citizenship in heaven and our hope in Christ, immovable, regardless of the moving political and social and religious climate. You think we stand out? Do you stand out? The early church turned persecution into proclamation. These guys and gals were covered in tar and and propped up in the Roman streets and lit with fire so they could burn throughout the night and provide light to the Roman streets. That was their persecution. I don't know. I cannot fully fathom what that was like for them. I can't fully fathom what was going on in their mind. But what we see in the scriptures is sure that their understanding of the gospel was all they needed to persevere. We know at least they must have seen the the, the heavy opposition increasing, the changes in the climate around them, and at least they must have thought, it sure is getting dark out there. This is what Jesus must have meant, that we would shine as a city on a hill. This is what Jesus must have meant when he said that we would be like lamps, propped up in a dark room, giving light to everything in the room. I wonder if people would actually be drawn into the light, as Jesus said. Let's go out there and shine the light of the glory of the gospel against the backdrop of the dark world around us. Jesus said he'd be with us. And that's exactly what they did. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, just as Jesus said. Paul says in Philippians 2, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see how easy that is? He says, don't get caught up in the grumbling of this world and you will shine. There will be a fragrant aroma about you. You'll have people coming up to you, what is that? What is that? Where did you get that? They will smell it. People will taste something different about you, immovable, something rock solid, content in all things. Regardless of life circumstances, we need to be mindful of how we perceive the cultural shifts around us, family. We need to look out through a biblical frame of reference. We need to respond with the heart and mind of Christ by the power of his spirit. Amen? The early church was an evangelizing community, committed to sharing the truths of the gospel with those around them, sharing hope in the midst of gloom, and showing love while surrounded by hate. The early church was also a unifying community. I love this. The first thing we notice is that the gospel of Jesus Christ extends from being shared with only those who were waiting for Messiah, the Jews, to everyone else who doesn't have a clue about Messiah. And the significance of this could not be overstated. The Gentiles and the Greeks, they couldn't care less about the Jewish God and their Messiah. And those are the people the new believers went to. The promises of Abraham, Messiah Jesus, God's salvation, it's for you too, if you will. The Jews were always told that they would be a light to the nations. And here we see it. It's actually happening for the first time after the resurrection of Christ being sent out. The chasm, the gospel has bridged the chasm between Jew and Gentile. And it is so appealing, so attractive. And Christ has that effect on people that large numbers were being drawn in. And it gets even better. I had to do a little research here. I hope you'd be blessed by by the discovery and it would only enrich our understanding all the more. The city of Antioch, okay, that's what we're talking about right here, was built around 330 BC by one of Alexander the Great's generals, Seleucus Nicanor, who named the city after his father, Antiochus. Antioch was the capital of Syria, now in modern-day Turkey. Antioch grew, to become the third largest city in the Roman Empire, next to Rome and Alexandria, with a population of over 500,000 residents. It was also conveniently and strategically built and placed right off the Mediterranean Sea um, to the north and and northwest. You have Rome and Greece to 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 the east. You have Asia to the south. You have Africa, making it a great center for trade, also making this city the one of the, the, the most ethnically and culturally diverse cities in the world. What's important for our understanding this morning is like all cities back then, Antioch was built with a strong wall around the city to protect its inhabitant, inhabitants from outsiders. But Seleucus also knew what type of city this would be. Seleucus knew that this city would draw people from all over the world seeking prosperity and security. And so what did he do? Eventually, there were walls that were built, that needed to be built, within the city. Walls within walls. Why? There were to, to separate people from one another. There were Jews, Greeks, Persians, Indians, Africans, that all needed to be protected from one another inside a protected city. Why? No difference than what we see today. Every ethnic cultural group views itself in one way or another as superior to others. We know this. We see this today. Whatever ethnic cultural group that you grew up in, most likely imposed some sort of belief system in you, whether it be family, friends, Those most likely imposed some sort of belief system in you that, that made you look down on others, possibly even fostered hate towards some. Same thing here. Same heart, just different age. They needed protection from one another. They needed walls, to, to maintain prosperity and security in the midst of diversity. Some historians and archaeologists suggest that there were even as many as 18 separated, walled communities within the city. Then come the Christians, humble yet confident, fully secure in the gospel, sharing the hope of the gospel to everyone that they crossed in their path. Man, woman, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, Persian, African. And what happened? For the first time in the history of the world, people were climbing over their walls of ethnic distinction. They were climbing over their walls of superiority. They were climbing over their walls Of security, literally. Why? To worship together. The gospel of Jesus Christ was able to break down barriers that no strategy and no human force could ever do in the history of the world. Paul writes in Ephesians 2 But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. One new man. There was a mixed a new mixed community in Antioch that could no longer but be identified as, as any particular cultural or ethnic or religious group. Who is this? What are they? What should we call them? Christians. And they were first called Christians in Antioch. Verse 26. Christ brought down the dividing walls of hostility that there would not be prosperity and security in diversity, that there would be unity in diversity. And we see this reflected in the leadership that's, that's, that's laid out in the beginning of Acts 13. We see names and, 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 and these leaders from different ethnic cultural groups. They were first called Christians here this extraordinarily unified community. Tim Keller writes in his book, Center Church, atheism and other religions can produce men and women of great, unusual moral, of of unusual moral greatness. But, What atheism and other religions cannot produce is the kind of loving community that only the gospel produces. In fact, Jesus states in John 17 that our deep unity is the way the world will know that the Father sent him and has loved us even as the Father loves him. Jesus says that the main way people will believe that Christians truly have found the love of God is by seeing the quality of their lives together in community. I wholeheartedly support that quote. And I'll take it one step further. Not only is it the quality of our lives demonstrated uh, together within the community of God and the household of God, but also with the quality of our lives out in the world, in our communities around us as the scattered body of Christ. How are we doing as a church? Can we tend to be so individualistic, so self-sufficient, that, that we have no regard whatsoever for community and, and, and the need for, for deep, intimate relationships with one another right here in, in the family of God? Are we known in our communities for proactively drawing people together? Are we known to be, engage, to, to, to be, to be proactively engaging people Are we known in our communities to be hospitable people? Let me ask another way, figuratively speaking. What walls do we need to climb over to foster unity in this diverse society? In-house and out in the world. What walls do we need to climb over to show the love and grace of God toward others in the church and in the world? Might we need to get over our walls of reputation, our walls of pride that we've constructed for ourselves? Might we need to climb over our walls of insecurity, of fear? I can't engage them. I wouldn't know what to say. What if they look at me differently? Jesus took initiative to come to us, despite our rebellious opposition against Him? Where are we taking initiative to reach out to others? Do we believe the hand of the Lord is with us? The early church made the grace of God known by sharing their faith as an evangelizing community, showing their faith as a unifying community. In other words, through the proclamation and demonstration of the gospel, And I want to take it one step further. The early church witnessed to the grace of God by being a servant community. In in the the last several verses, from 27 to 30, we see that there was a great famine coming. And the brothers were quick to to send relief aid to the best of, of each one of their abilities. They were quick to meet the needs of one another. We see this all throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 shows that they sold their possessions so that as each one had need, they met them. In Acts chapter 4, we saw that uh, they pulled together all their resources and not one uh, owned their own set of things, but everything was was communal so that no one was lacking. And I'm pleased to, to take a minute here and commend you all on how encouraged I've been to be part of this church and see the grace of God moving among, among us with respect to meeting one another's needs. And I mean that. People talk about, oh, big churches. It can be so impersonal. Oh, big church. It can, it can, there can be so many challenges in a big church. So, you know, once you get to that side. Yeah, all that's true. There's unique challenges to small churches, large churches, but you don't know my church That's what I think. I'm serious. When I think of your generosity, I am greatly encouraged. Everything, in my four years here, whenever I see anything being being, uh, offered or extended or needs, I have watched you all abundantly meet one another's needs, abundantly provide for the saints. We're We're working in Syria. You guys are generous. I mean, locally, with local initiatives, projects, supporting missionaries. I truly commend you all on behalf of the leadership of the church, and everyone here. Thank you. It has been, it is amazing to see the grace of God at work among us in this area. And that's the whole mission of Kingdom Builders too that you just heard. Those among us who are seeking to meet the tangible needs of of those in-house in our community and then around the community around us. So sign up today. Sorry. Um, (laughs) Now, it's important that we acknowledge that we are just seeing the the tip of the iceberg here in this passage okay the believers in the roman empire they not only cared for their own well-being that's what we're seeing here but they also cared for the well-being of others remember what i told you about antioch and its design well here's a little more to help with understanding the context the size of antioch was approximately five to six square miles okay and they had over 500,000 residents. Let's put that in perspective. The city of Trenton is approximately seven to eight square miles and consists of just over 84,000 residents. That makes Antioch two square miles smaller than Trenton with over six times the amount of people. Oh, and no toilets no sanitation like we have today, no social services like we have today. The Roman Empire, although far advanced in its civilization of people, was incredibly weak when it came to the weak. The sick and elderly were left to wither and die. No hospitals, no clinics to provide care. Children especially girls, were left in the streets to die. There was no motive to care for the weak. Why should they? They only deplete our resources, so they thought and felt. As you could imagine, sickness, death, and decay was overwhelming for these cities, but not for the Christians. Those sick and rejected, left for dead, Christians brought into their homes. To nurse and bring about healing. Children abandoned, Christians brought under their wings. To foreigners and strangers, Christians welcome. To widows, Christians served. They astounded Roman leaders in this age. They've never seen anything like this before. I read one letter uh, from the first century Governor. Pliny writing to Emperor Trajan out of Bithynia, uh, an area in in Asia Minor, and he's he's writing, I don't know what to do with these Christians. They're spreading like wildfire. They gather together every morning. They 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 eat together. They they worship Jesus as as a god, and 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 then they go out into the community and they and they meet the needs of everyone. I find no fault in them. What do I do about this Christian problem? What separated Christians from everyone else? Christians have a God who first entered into our disease stricken city, Earth. Christians have a God who took upon himself our death, disease, and decay so that we would find healing and life in him, amen? On the cross, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, became sin. He took our sin upon himself that we would become the righteousness of God, receive his righteousness, and be with God and know him now and forever. That's the gospel message that empowered Christians back then and still does today, to serve others for their well-being, to love others selflessly. And Christianity spread like wildfire. Tim Chester in his book, Good News to the Poor, notes, this is important for us to acknowledge, the text of the gospel is always heard by, the, by people in the context, in a context. Our text, the message we share, will always be interpreted by the context of our lives, the message we show. The question we need to ask ourselves is Does the context of our lives line up with the text of the transforming grace in Jesus Christ? People hear our words well when they see our deeds. Our deeds verify our words. Are we proactively seeking to meet the needs of those around us? Are we looking for them? Do we care? Now, these three characteristics of the early church, that they were an evangelizing community, a unifying community, and a serving community, gave rise to tremendous gospel advancement and and, and, and tremendous disciple-making, very fruitful. It resulted even in in establishing one of the most powerful sending churches of its time in Antioch, which you see from Acts 13 on, the hub of Paul and Barnabas' missionary journeys. To simplify things, these ministries can be referred to as word ministry, sharing the hope of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us. Deed ministry, showing the grace of the gospel in service toward others. And reconciliation ministry, seeking to reconcile others to God and to one another. Word, deed, and reconciliation. All three of these go hand in hand. There must be a healthy balance of meeting the physical and spiritual needs of the community, those in-house and around us, ministering to them in word and deed. Are we witnessing well, family? We need to reflect upon this question. Acts 8.6 says, Philip brought great joy to his city with the word that he preached and his deeds of service. Do you bring great joy to your community? Do we in our community here? In chapter nine, Tabitha dies and the community widows are at her bedside weeping. If Riverstone Church were to shut down, would our community weep? If you were to move out of your neighborhood, would anybody really care? Would it impact other people's lives, the absence of your presence? I encourage you all to ask yourself, how can I be more intentional sharing the gospel? What can I do to show, love, and serve people where their needs are? Are there others with similar interests that may be able to come alongside me or me alongside them? How can I engage my neighbor, coworker, fellow student? Uh, to to how can I introduce them to my Christian community, in a natural way, family, in a welcoming and sincere way? This is organic relational evangelism, living out our lives daily as witnesses to the gospel. Now, in, what's what's of utmost importance moving forward is that I acknowledge with you all this is. Very tough. this is much easier to preach than to actually do, and i don 't have enough time to share all my weaknesses, mistakes my my deficits in in, in, in uh, you know doing what I preach here, but we need to together reckon with the word of God and and today marks an important um, uh, you know uh, point in in our church together because I want to present you all, using this text as an understanding of living out our lives um, as witnesses to the gospel in word, deeds, seeking to reconcile the world to God and to one another, Um, I want to advise you all that we're here to help, and we want to, into this next year, and moving forward, we're gonna be placing a special emphasis on equipping one another in a very practical way for each one of us to live out our lives as faithful witnesses to the gospel over this next year so that we can together maximize our daily paths out in the world as witnesses to the gospel. We're going to have periodic evangelism trainings the first one we're, we're landing on a date in August. We're going to start posting, which we'll advise you all of, of material, clear concise, very practical material that many of us have been sifting through for, for years and months now to provide online for you all to, to come to a better idea of how you can start conversations, engage family, friends, loved ones, those around you in your community, so we can be proactive in, in showing and sharing the grace of God with others. Also, in the fall, we're, we're, we're landing. Now, it's not fully solidified. I'm pushing, but we'll see. Um, uh, we're, we're thinking about having a podcast, a podcast starting in the fall, in house podcast, no more than 15 minute long episodes where there'll be some teaching and, and training to help us, you know, learn on how to engage and live out our lives in word and deed well, but also utilizing you all, because some of you are doing it very well. Some of you are, are faithfully pouring out your lives in deeds, of, in deeds of service to the poor and the communities around you or, or those in need. Some of you are faithfully preaching the gospel in, in all your paths and maximizing your paths. We want to hear from you all, and we want to create a place, an avenue, where you all can be building, building one another up as we as see. We seek to, to shine the light of the glory of the, of, of the gospel to our community around us. Those are some things to keep an eye out for that'll be coming in this next year. We look forward to working with everybody all the more toward the end of advancing the gospel by making disciples who make disciples. Imagine the impact our church could have if all of us are fully engaged in our our spheres of influence in the world as witnesses to the gospel. We want to be a church where people come in, they see the grace of God, and they rejoice. That we go home to our communities, to our workplaces, to our schools, that they can see and taste the grace of God and rejoice, and even ask for the hope that makes you tick. Let's be the living body of Christ out in the communities, starting here, out in the world, bringing joy to the world, glory and thanksgiving to God. Amen? And if you have not experienced, this whole message I've been talking about, the grace and the goodness of God, tasting it, knowing it, experiencing God, that's the starting point. If you don't know God and have not yet come to an understanding of who Jesus really is and what he's done for you and, and, don't, and, and are not filled with the joy of the Lord and the peace of God, we invite you to ask someone around you. We'd be happy to share with you what, what it means to follow Christ and, and what next steps could be. Also come see one of us, pastors, ushers, anyone around, okay? Let's say a word of prayer and, and let's move out this week um, as agents of peace and blessing in the world. Father, thank you For your word, for the early church that you've preserved for us to see and hear of their words and how they live their lives. Thank you that we can measure our lives accordingly and that we have very tangible um, characteristics for us to seek to grow in. And we need that, Father. We need the power of your Spirit at work in us. We need one another to build each other up. And we pray that you fill us all with the love of Christ, that the love of Christ be, be that which compels us to move out in the world. In zealous pursuit of, of you and, and a lost world, a hurting world that desperately needs the healing and the hope and the redeeming, transforming power of the gospel, Father. Send us out that we be a blessing to the community for your, for your great name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.